0: Chapter 11 of Stories of the Royal Humane Society by Frank Mundell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Amid Storm and Darkness, the residents spend their lives in a primitive and unambitious manner. Such is the description we have of the people of Newfoundland, and in no other part of the world can a hardier race of men be found. Their kindness and hospitality to strangers is a marked feature of their character, and indeed they are worthy descendants of those fearless men who laid the foundation of our vast colonial empire, for Newfoundland is England's oldest colony, a fact of which that island is justly proud. From the ocean, the island has a wild and rock-bound appearance, but on a nearer view, the line of cliffs is seen to be broken by magnificent bays, many of which stretch inland for about a hundred miles. From the water's edge, the shores of several of these bays are clothed with green-dark forests, which give the country a striking and picturesque aspect. The fisheries on the coast of Newfoundland constitute the chief industry of the island, and since the discovery of America by Cabot in 1497, they have been a great source of wealth. The chief fishing ground is towards the southeast, on what is called the Great Bank of Newfoundland, a huge sandbank nearly 300 miles in length. Here, large quantities of cod are caught every year and form an important article of food on the island, the annual consumption amounting to about 8 million fish. The seal fishery also gives work to a large number of people. Owing to the fogs which shroud the coast from time to time, wrecks are of frequent occurrence, and the cliffs, between two and three hundred feet high, afford but little chance of life to the shipwrecked mariner. Many stories of rescue might be told of this island, but there are none which surpass in grandeur that which we are now about to narrate. On the night of the twenty-ninth of November, 1875, a man named Langmead who lived at the north of Pelch Cove, a fishing village a few miles from St. John's, was aroused from sleep by cries for help, which seemed to come from persons near his house. Lighting a lamp and partially dressing himself, he opened the door and looked out. To his surprise, he saw two men, wet to the skin and well-nigh exhausted, "'leaning against the wall. "'In reply to his question, "'What do you want here?' "'One of the men told a pitiful story. "'He said that he was the captain of a schooner, "'which had left St. John's a few hours before "'with a crew of twenty-four men. "'For a time all had gone well, "'but suddenly a gale sprang up, "'accompanied by a blinding snowstorm.' and in trying to enter an adjacent cove, the vessel had been driven on the rocks. The moment that she struck, he jumped from the bridge onto a ledge of rock, and his example was followed by two of the sailors. Many were drowned, but the remainder of the crew had succeeded in obtaining a footing on another ledge. Their cries for help were more than the captain could endure, so he determined to go in search of assistance. Accompanied by one of the sailors, he began the ascent of the cliff, and after a perilous climb, they reached the summit and set out across the snow-covered fields in the hope of finding some habitation. The barking of a dog had led them to Pouch Cove, and they begged for food and shelter for themselves and speedy help for their shipmates. Without loss of time, a substantial meal was set before them, and then Langmead set out to alarm the village. In a few minutes, most of the inhabitants on the north side of Pouch Cove were up, and many prepared to start for the scene of the disaster with ropes and other tackle which they thought would prove useful. There is a deep and narrow inlet of Gulch about a mile and a half to the northeast of Pelch Cove, well named the Horrid Gulch. On the south side of this inlet, the rocks run up almost perpendicularly to a height of 600 feet, and against them, in stormy weather, the long Atlantic rollers dash with tremendous force. On a shelving rock near the foot of the cliff lay the survivors. On the north side the cliff is less precipitous and rises in a succession of ledges onto one of which the three men had jumped. The party of rescuers started from the village about one o'clock in the morning and quickly reached the north side of the gulch. There they found the man who had been left behind. And having rescued him, they crossed over to the southern side to try and find the whereabouts of the unfortunate crew. Above the thunder of the waves came the cries of the poor fellows calling for aid, but the darkness was so intense and the snowdrifts so blinding that it was impossible to see their position. The men on the cliff raised a shout of encouragement to let them know that relief would soon be afforded them. But while they shouted, every mind was anxiously trying to devise some plan of rescue, and many were their misgivings. At length they decided that the only way possible was by lowering a man over the cliff by a rope. This was a feat not unattended with danger even during the day, but on such a night it seemed certain death. Who was there bold enough to take the risk? A few moments passed in painful silence, then a fisherman named Alfred Mores volunteered to make the attempt. A strong rope was accordingly fastened round him, and he was lowered over the precipice. Owing to the overhanging nature of the cliff, he found it impossible to proceed, and sheltered to be drawn up. Three times was the brave fellow swung into the darkness, and as often drawn up baffled. A fourth time he was lowered, and half swinging, half sliding along a steep crevasse in the rock, he succeeded in reaching a ledge immediately over that from whence the cries proceeded guided and supported by his rope other brave fellows now followed him and took up a position between him and the top of the cliff so as to be in readiness should their assistance be required at the top with the end of the rope round a tree was william langmead to form any idea of the pluck of these men, you must picture to yourself their position on that bleak cliff side, in the darkness and cold, clinging for dear life to a rope, the length of which, from the top to where Alfred Moore stood, with the end round his body, was eighty-five fathoms. Peering through the darkness, Moore's could just distinguish several poor creatures huddled together on a rock about a hundred feet below. Twice he threw down a hand line, but the nerveless hands of the sufferers failed to grasp it. A third cast proved successful, and then a stronger rope was passed down and made fast round the body of one of the sailors. Moore's hauled him up to the ledge on which he stood. There the rope was untied and passed down again, while the rescued man, helped along by those on the crevasse and supporting himself by the rope to which they were clinging, reached the top in safety. In this way, the nine survivors were rescued, thanks to the courage and skill of Alfred Moores and his brave companions. For his active benevolence, Moors was awarded the silver medal of the Royal Humane Society. Twelve years later, another brave Newfoundlander received a similar reward for conspicuous bravery. During a dense fog, a ship named the Octavia ran aground on a dangerous reef at Burnt Head. The lives of those on board were in great peril when Philip Cow an assistant lighthouse keeper, hailed them from the cliff and told them to heave a line ashore. A rope was thrown and made fast by Cal, who, after removing some of the heavier portions of his clothing, fastened a line round his body and swam out through the surf to the vessel, which was lying about twenty yards from the shore. Two men were brought safely to land. Then, after a brief rest, Cow then made the same perilous journey backwards and forwards seven times, till he had rescued the nine men who composed the crew of the Octavia. Shortly after the captain had been brought ashore, the ship broke up. End of chapter 11